This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Christian McQuiggan, a husband, father, and CEO of Dynamite Studios, a 21st century media company that creates films, documentaries, and commercials. Dynamite has produced content for Hyundai, Microsoft, Disney, PwC, Nestle, Lego, and many more. In this episode, Deacon Charlie talks with Christian about his work at Dynamite, which specializes in motivating social impact through creative storytelling. They discuss the gap that exists in entertainment for content that is both non-objectionable and high quality, and how Dynamite is striving to fill this gap. We ultimately look at, there's a huge market segment that is not being serviced. That market segment is now more connected than ever. And if we can make good on our promise to deliver them high quality, you know, values-based, values-driven content that is produced at the highest level, we, we think the sky's the limit. This is Living the Call. Christian McQuiggan, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Deacon Charlie. Thanks so much. Man, I'm a huge fan of yours. So it's it was a long time coming. I just happened happened to you know see you in Austin and thought, yeah, let's get together. Let's make it happen. I well, I've been a big fan of yours and a big fan of the show for a long time. So this is kind of like when you get invited to go on NPR with Terry Gross. I say, hey, longtime fan. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna extra whisper in that case. Yeah, you're so the Terry can... you're the Terry Gross of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. <laughs> exactly. I've been called a lot of things. That's not one of them. <laughs> I think I think one of the reasons I, I dig on you so much is because we have very similar backgrounds, and you know I've all I've often remarked that finding people that have you know that come from a media background and uh-huh. who've experienced the secular media world, and who then you know get lit up with their faith and then go off and do different things. They're like they're very rare people to come across. I presume there's lots of folks who just maybe haven't taken that step, but it's unusual. I mean, I think more and more I, I see emerging uh, in different industries and in different sides of the industry or some folks who may not have necessarily identified as maybe I don't like to make it political, but let's say right of center. They now yeah. find themselves because of the shifting Overton window in that place. Mm. And, and luckily, uh, you know, why I'm most optimistic about the media landscape, which I think might sound kind of Pollyannish to folks is there are a lot of people who are now values aligned, who, mm. who believe in a higher calling, and now their talent actually matches the opportunity. There was a mm. lot of us, say, 10, 15 years ago, who'd be you know, sitting in a bar or sitting around a dinner table talking about, just wait till we're in charge. But yeah, none the of, moaning things. Yeah, yeah, but none of us had the background or the chops or the experience to really make that a reality. And you know, 10, 15 years later, it's, it's, time, it's time to go. I know it's like an individual thing for everybody on their walk, but is there a macro thing that keeps people maybe in that bar who maybe are ready to make, to, 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 does it keep, what keeps them from making that, that leap forward? Is it something similar to maybe when a, I don't know, Protestant minister converts and becomes Catholic, but you know, in his mind, but he hasn't taken that step forward because there's the issues of you know, salary and insurance and congregations. Is there something like that that happens? There definitely is. And I think it's actually, there's, there's not a lot of options. If you want to do mm. something against the grain from normal, normal secular media, for the most part, I think there's a lot of fantastic secular media. And, and I had a, a, a terrific time working with a lot of extraordinary people uh, who I didn't agree with on most issues. And I think politically, mm. we probably were on different sides of the aisle. 
but they were tremendous people and, and there were seeds of truth and, and real virtue in those folks, natural virtue. So, but I think getting back to what, what really holds people back, I think it's the lack of options. So what are your options right mm. now if you identify as a conservative uh, or have more conservative traditional values and you want to do something in media? So you can go to the Daily Wire, right? Uh, and, and I met those guys and they're doing, you know, tremendous work, but they've even admitted we can give people jobs, but we can't give them careers because you can't go work mm. for the daily wire and come back and then go work for Paramount. You're, you're right. You're persona you can't parlay that precisely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and then, you know, another aspect of it might be like, well, then maybe you go work for kingdom story company, the, the Irwin brothers. Uh, I know John Irwin. I think he's a tremendous talent and is doing extraordinary things in the industry but it is explicitly faith-based. And so on that side, you say, well, yeah, I, I like that. And I'm glad that that content is there and it's getting better sure. and better and it's making a massive impact on society, but maybe I don't want to do faith-based projects. So where, mm. where are you left? You're left to actually be a real entrepreneur and say, all right, I need to just start something wholly new. And that's a big leap for most folks. And that's a big leap Huge. even for people who are established and have a track record to say, you know, I'm now going to become an entrepreneur and try to create something wholly new. So. Um, I, I don't blame people for not taking that step, but I think now we're, we're seeing in different avenues and different aspects with funders and different organizations and, and the growth and the support of broader society looking for this type of content, looking for this type of storytelling, that there's actually a much softer landing for a lot of these folks. And I think that's why we're seeing progress on that front. I think I was just um, talking to a documentarian named Martin Doblemeyer. Mm -hmm. who uh, last week uh, released a PBS documentary called Sabbath. And this guy's been a documentarian for 40 years. He's a Catholic guy. I'm not sure where he you would put him in a Catholic spectrum or, or tradition, what kind of food group he'd be in, and I've never asked. But he's done projects that, you know, tie into faith. He did um, something on Dorothy Day. He's done some stuff on the Trappists. He's done, like, a variety of things. But he's also done, like— you know, documentaries on activists and like sports and just like a variety of different things, but he's had a heart for kind of faith stories. And this Sabbath um, movie that just came out last week, in fact, I had him on the show, um, the episode, it doesn't matter, but the episode comes out this week, but I had him on the show earlier. Um, and, you know, his whole premise for this Sabbath movie is that he's trying to... Um, provide some kind of option for the exhaustion that people feel. And the Sabbath is, you know, in a supernatural sense, that respite, that moment of rest, et cetera. I thought about that idea of like everybody being very exhausted. And I wonder if some of that exhaustion uh -huh. is also driving this sort of renewed appetite for, for this kind of, of storytelling, right. That that's out there. Um, or, or that hasn't historically been, you know, out there at least done well. Because I do think that I get a sense that there's more of this kind of appetite. I mean, dude, just right now, there's like five Catholic-related movies that are in theaters right now. you got Padre Pio, you've got Nefarious, you've got His Only Son, you've got The Pope's Exorcist, you've got the uh, San Jose Luis del Rio movie in Spanish. But they're all like out there right uh -huh. now uh -huh. at the same time. And so like I, I just wonder if, you know, the Holy Spirit's in charge of everything, but like is is there some kind of— just exhaustion, just like everything we look at, generally speaking, is just not good for us. And, and, and there's like a, this natural desire to like, give me something good to consume. 
Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I agree with everything you said. I think I would probably boil it down to three factors of why we're actually seeing the emergence. So one is what, what I mentioned before, which is there's more talented people who have, who have objective talent who are creating mm-hmm. content. Now they wouldn't mm-hmm. be creating it if there, if there wasn't an audience for it. So I agree. Yeah, I think there's an exhaustion. And I think there's been some, some red lines that have been crossed for a lot of yeah. folks. Yeah. And it used to be, you know, a, a film, let's say like Super Mario Brothers comes up. Um, I saw the film. It's obviously done tremendously well. Uh, I didn't think it was particularly good, but it wasn't bad. And amongst more conservative leaning parents, the sort of clarion call went out that just said, this movie is quote unquote safe. You can take your kids. Yeah. to it. There's nothing objectionable yeah. in it. We're not saying it's good. We're not saying your kids are going to learn anything about virtue by seeing it, but it's just entertaining. And so the bar's low. The bar is very, very low. Uh, and so w- when you get that sort of seal of approval, um, I took my kids to see it. No question. And I actually fell asleep in it and I was comfortable falling asleep. <laughs> in it. I was awoken by their, their laughter, which was, which was terrific. The best way to ever be awoken by your, your children. But, sure. um, I was fully comfortable falling asleep in that film. And so it used to be, there was a lot of options. I could take my kids to see any number of things, or there was enough family movies or family content out there that I felt totally comfortable. And in this day and age, you just don't have those options, whether it's streaming content or what's going to be available in theaters. There are very few options. And so that exhaustion or that red line or, you know, there, there actually are going to be different options where I could be far more discerning in what I choose to watch and what I choose my family to be exposed to. But when those options are there and they're good and they actually can cross over beyond just, you know, more values driven or, or faith driven audiences, then you you start hitting home runs like the chosen and and Jesus Revolution and and some of these other uh, shows that have been coming out. That red line too, we've seen it um, very prominently in the world of uh, of advertising mm-hmm. lately. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something you have experience with as well. For people who don't know you, I mean, you're a guy who you know was has been and is a producer. You worked at you know significant um, secular production, uh, you know, in media companies like Participant Media and. Then you've gone on and continue to do other things with um, with really interesting companies like Rex and and you've even you know been a professor or I don't know still are maybe so like you've done a bunch of different stuff but that red line in advertising to me is really interesting because you know and I'm speaking specifically about what's been going on with Anheuser Busch and sure. and with Target the Dodgers in my you know my backyard lately. And there, there does seem to be something different, right? There, it has more staying power. It has more sort of relevance. And, and, and they all deal with the same social issue, I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a big part of this equation. But I have noticed that. It doesn't feel like the same moment. I mean, you could say it's just a, it's just a different use case. But it almost feels like a different moment, too, going back to maybe this sort of exhaustion. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I've seen it firsthand with some folks in my life who— they have no problem with certain displays and stores. And frankly, they've been there for decades yeah. or at least the, the, the last decade and a half. But when you start getting into very specific issues and uh, there's one thing to explain things to your children that are age appropriate or how you want to explain them to your family. And there's other things where you shouldn't have to explain those things to your family at, at a young age. It's just mm. only age inappropriate. And if they're going to be exposed to that, once you start messing with kids and I'm a father of four small children, um, mm. that's when both as a father, but I would say sort of the mama bears really start coming yeah. out. And I, I know folks who are 
part of our core target consumers and shoppers multiple times a week. And they were motivated to write letters to the CEO. Wow. And they were thoughtful. I heard a couple of them. They were thoughtful. They were very clear. They were very open to say, hey, I've got no problem with the LGBTQ community. I have no problem with necessarily even pride displays. They've been there for a long time, but we've crossed the line here. And now it's, it's affecting my children and the, the mama bear's claws are going to start coming out and God help you when that happens from a, from a, <laughs> from a consumer standpoint. Oh, wow. For sure. Yeah. The chief everything officer. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean, there has been, you know, significant economic impact, um, to these, to these players. I mean, the target, I don't know if I get, if I'm getting this, this stat right, but I think it was, uh, 23 years since the stock price has been, at, at the state that it's in right now. So it's like real material impasse, not just like social commentary of people disagreeing with things. And in a way, it's kind of been a rediscovery of, um, you know, the power of the purse, right? Uh-huh, the, uh-huh. The, the, that kind of idea. And, you know, I think that that sadly is a lot of the ways that, you know, the corporate world in any case really does pay attention to things is like, okay, well, when we see this, dramatically impacting our bottom line. Is this, a, is this a fight that we really need to have? That's the other question I think that I've seen people begin to ask. It's like, well, listen, we may or may not agree with something, but is this our fight, yeah. right? Um, because the impact is broad and deep. Yeah, I think the biggest test case that I think we're going to see, and I know you have experience because you're, you're an alum and, and they've been a client of mine in the past, is what happens with Disney. Mm. Disney is a company that has a sterling track record for the most part, Pixar for that matter. Sure. I mean, they pretty much only hit home runs and their last two theatrical releases, not, not including the little mermaid, which I think we got to see how that all shakes out. Uh, their last two theatrical releases that had content that some parents would find objectionable or age inappropriate, uh, completely failed at the box office. I mean, two of the worst flops in the history of the Walt Disney company. And I mean, you look at some of the flops from the nineties and they look like blockbusters compared to that, those last two films. And so in that case, there's a lot of shareholders, uh, a friend of mine, his, his former boss is the largest single shareholder, uh, of the Walt Disney company. Mm. And you can't afford to have too many of those. And particularly you can't afford it, not only from a bottom line standpoint, but you start breaching that trust with parents. We're ultimately in charge of what our children are going to see or not see up to a certain age. And you breach that trust and suddenly Disney's no longer a trusted name. Mm. Suddenly Disney Plus no longer becomes an option. And, you know, I, I, I remember seeing this from a box office standpoint and having worked for participant and what works and what doesn't. I worked for a big Omnicom agency and worked with, with massive brands and now launching a new studio that's really focused on children and family content. And yes, we want to move the needle uh, culturally and we want to leave a dent in society as best we possibly can. But ultimately we have to make money for our investors. And there is a huge market opportunity for those folks who really lay into that. What's the thesis for the new studio? Your new studio is called Dynamite Studios, um, which I want to definitely hear about the attribution to the sure. name. I don't know if that's like a dynamite is in the root word of this, the, the same root word of, as apostle in Greek, or if there's just dynamite, cause we can blow things up. Um, yep. but, uh, but what's your thesis for how you organize this new endeavor in terms of the kind of content, right? You talked about, you, you, you illustrated the kind of dichotomy for people in the industry, right? If I've got quality and I'm values aligned, if I am quality and I'm values aligned, my options are fairly limited. 
and because I can go one way or another way, but neither one is really the right one, the, the one I, I'd like to go to. So mm-hmm. how does that shape the thesis for what you're trying to build now? Yeah, I mean, I think we boil it down really to a pretty simple phrase, which is we want to make content, particularly children's and family content, that's so good that you as a parent want to actually sit and watch it with your kids. Mm. But it's also so good that you don't have to. Mm. It's exhausting as a parent in all the best possible ways, but sometimes you just want to put on a great show or film and I don't know, go fold laundry or go answer some emails or whatever it is. And if you are in more or less constant sort of trepidation that you're not sure what's going to be coming on next or what might be slipped in or what your child might be asking you about where you're, you're sort of shocked at this age they're asking about, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. You start making streaming platform subscription decisions based on that problem. Sure. So what we want to do, and, and you said it was as far as setting the bar, I mean, I think a great example would be a show called Bluey. Bluey is the number one kids show on planet Earth. Uh, there's seven minute episodes. It's an Australian show about a family of Australian dogs, a husband, a wife, and two little girls. And it is just about perfect. Uh, it streams on Disney Plus, even though Disney had nothing to do with the the production of it. They licensed that content. And where is the bar set for uh, Bluey? I wouldn't say Bluey's a Christian show. I, I, I've had no indication from the creators or the writers or anything that it's explicitly Christian or values driven. But where the bar is set, and it's pretty striking for, I'll just say the father character in the show, is uh, he appears to be in a, in a pretty happy relationship with his wife. Their marriage is actually very, very important to them. They're, they're not without challenges. They're not without um, uh, things going wrong, but he loves his wife. And perhaps more importantly, as far as representation goes, to use a term um, that our brothers and sisters on the left use a lot, he's intimately involved in his children's lives. He cares about his kids. Mm. He makes sacrifices for his kids. Mm. He is not the Homer Simpson bumbling dad who doesn't know anything and uh, is, is generally just getting in the way. I mean, I'll tell you, Charlie, one day it was, I think it was a Sunday afternoon and I was laying on the couch and I was just enjoying the day, but I was tired. I had been worn out from a week of work and my four-year-old came up to me and wanted to play. And I could have very easily and defensively said, let daddy rest for a little bit. We'll get to that a little bit later. And I'm not kidding you. I actually thought of the dog from the Australian cartoon and said, what would Bluey's dad do in this situation? And I'm like, Bluey's dad would roll off the couch and start playing. Yep. Maybe he would, and, and this has happened in an episode, he's helped, let's play a game where daddy gets to lay on the floor and doesn't have to move. Um, I've, I've played that but, many times. But yeah, i played that many times. But I literally took a step back and said, did I just get inspired to be a better father by an Australian healer in a seven-minute cartoon from Australia funded by the Australian government? And the answer was yes. Amazing. So to... To think about if you could scale that type of content, sure. if you could do it in feature filmmaking. So the bar is really set up like, here's what's not in our content. We're just going to leave this stuff out. We just don't think it's age appropriate and we don't think the market is really demanding it. And then from that point, you can start raising that bar as high as, as you can creatively from a narrative standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, um, to really integrate content to where you land on something like Narnia, right? The Chronicles of Narnia. You could be a secular atheist and go see that film and be like, wow, that was really fun. Like that lion was talking and fighting in a battle. That's terrific. Now, if, if you're more faith centric, you can kind of give the wink and say, yeah, we know who the lion is. Yeah. We know what that story is. Mm. Um, and that for us is, is a real home run that if, if we can hit that eventually, 
um, we think that the sky is absolutely the limit, both from creating a relationship with an audience and and seeing those types of returns for the folks who want to support us. To me, that's super smart also from just a product market fit standpoint, right? Part of the the idea of being an entrepreneur and looking out at the marketplace is finding the gaps, right? And so even <laughs> if you were approaching this, which I know you're not, but purely from an economic and you know standpoint, you would say, okay, well, the bar is super low. If the if the insight is, and it sounds like it is, that the for a parent, the idea that, okay, nothing is going to harm my child. If that's uh-huh. the bar, literally, uh-huh. then there's about, you know, three or four segments above that that are very monetizable, right? Before you get to whatever, you know, the Avengers or something crazy. So sure. like you've got these different markets in a way or, you know, areas that are currently not being filled, at least not at scale, right? And so to me, just looking at just that thesis alone, if I'm only thinking about making money, to me, that just mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. It is. And then you look at that market segment and um, praise God, even though it's, it's slowed down quite a bit, we're not going to stop having children and children are not going to stop wanting to watch cartoons yep. and content and feature films. And families are, are going to continue to be gathering to watch that content, which, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I don't want to look back at like sort of the halcyon days, but there was a lot of family entertainment, whether it was Goonies or Flight of the Navigator or Indiana Jones. Those were movies that the whole family could get together and no one in the family felt like they were making a big sacrifice to have to watch this film. And they were rewarded to the box office. E.T. as another example. I mean, Spielberg knows this in spades. And so, yeah, well, that's what we, we ultimately look like look at is there's a huge market segment that is not being serviced. That market segment is now more connected than ever. And if we can make good on our promise to deliver them high quality, you know, values based, values driven content that is produced at the highest level, we, we think the sky's the limit. I mean, another way to think about it is also the, the idea which Disney broadly popularized was this notion of co-viewing which has mm-hmm. essentially kind of died, right? This idea that like we're creating content specifically for settings where parents are with their kids, family movies, you know, different things like that, even animation, but the, recovering that, reclaiming that and saying that, you know, there can be content that is not only not objectionable, but actually desirable for a, for a, a group of people to watch together that are in a unit, not just sitting in a theater, to me is like very ambitious and has been proven in the past to, to, to work. Right. And I I think that it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's an unfortunate casualty of our one-to-one kind of media and programming desire, which we've moved to because of all digital media that like, I just want to talk to Christian. Like I'm talking right to him and that's it. And he's got his headphones on and you're just by yourself. One of the unfortunate byproducts of that is that we've stopped thinking about these settings where maybe like a family can actually gather together around something. And that that to me is 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 big. I mean, sounds big. Yeah, it's massive. And I think a lot of it has been affected by Netflix. I mean, they they changed and disrupted the entire industry. And, you know, whether you're following the writer's strike right now, it all yep. comes down to Netflix. Like who's going to blink first? And, and Netflix, I mean, even if you look at the history of Netflix, they had no interest in creating children's content whatsoever. Mm. Uh, they were not creating any original children's content until somebody in analytics came up and said, hey, have you seen the numbers anytime we have any kids shows? Because not only do the kids watch it, but they watch it a lot. I mean, you look at the multi-billion uh, view videos on YouTube and a lot of those are just... They are kids content, yeah. right? And, Baby uh, shark. and for the most, 
Baby Shark. And, Moon, and, uh, and uh, what's it? Moon Moonbug? What is it? No, not Moonbug. Yeah, Moonbug Entertainment. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Oh, uh, Coco Melon. Melon. Coco Melon. Coco Melon. Yeah. Yep. Um, I have I have come close to tearing my eyes and ears <laughs> out uh, due to Coco Melon, but uh, luckily there was Bluey to the rescue. But yeah, I think Netflix. I had uh, a friend who, who directed a film for Netflix last year that was a, a co-viewing film, and it did tremendously well. It was number one for two weeks in 90 countries. Mm. And Netflix was, they weren't shocked by it, but they were kind of like, yeah, we need more of this co-viewing content. Because if you break it down broadly, and I don't mean to be like too reductive in this, you have like Coco Melon content. You've got more broad sort of like for my wife and I type content. And then you have like Oscar bait content. Mm. And then there's obviously the documentary series, true crime, all that kind of stuff. There's some, there's some terrific documentaries on Netflix. But there's not a lot of in-between space yeah. in, in any of those categories. Yeah. There's very little crossover on any of those categories. And I think now we see, there, like, like you said before, there's a massive market need to do that. Now, to meet that challenge, just because we can recognize the need, we have to actually be able to deliver on it. And to deliver on it, you need to be able to do it at the highest possible quality. Mm. And to do that, you know, I think the exciting challenge mm. will be um, folks who maybe aren't fully values aligned or religiously affiliated actually saying, yeah, I'll direct that film for you. I think it's a great film. I think it's a great movie. There's nothing that I, as a, as a secular director, think is, is objectionable in it. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a massive hit. And I want to tell that story. Have you found that like to the extent you've had conversations like that with people who may not be aligned or maybe in some cases in their personal life antagonistic to, to things like that, have you found them generally receptive, reluctant? Like what, what, what's your experience in those conversations to the extent you've had them? Yeah. Yeah. If you can assuage their fears uh, that you're not, and again, I don't mean to, to call out the daily wire, but if you can assuage their fears and say, Hey, we're not the daily wire. Um, we're just here to create high quality content and, and really strike storytelling at the highest possible level. And it happens that the folks that we want to tell these stories to is a really broad audience. Um, yeah, they are receptive to it. Um, I've had a lot of friends, uh, my partner on, on the kids content side, specifically the kids and family content is a, a gentleman named Tim record who was nominated for an Academy award as a director in 2014 and, uh, has directed big feature films for studios and, and he said, particularly in the animation space and in the stop motion animation space, there's no question. Mm. I mean, there's not a ton of work to go around, but he's like, yeah, they're, they're just happy to work on a project. And if it's a great project, absolutely. And if it's going to make money at the box office, all the better for them. So there isn't a lot of antagonism there. Now, would they work on something that's expressly faith driven? It's happened in the past, but they'd have to have some sort of connection to that story in a unique way. Um, but you know, anything's possible. I think the flip side of that is, is more dangerous. And I think we've seen this in the past, particularly with faith-based content and why it comes out on the back end as something that, um, at the, at the worst case is unwatchable yep. is sometimes folks go into those projects and say, we're only going to work with people of faith. I've on seen it. Oh yeah. You've seen it, right? Yep. And you run out of talent really, real really fast. quickly, real fast. And I don't think that's the way Jesus would make a film personally. Mm -mm. I could be wrong. But I think uh, because I don't think it's the same way Jesus would uh, select a dentist. I don't think Jesus would, would say, well, I got to look in the back of the bulletin and find somebody who's advertising their dental wares. It's like, no, I want to go to the best possible dentist I can afford. And I don't really care what they do on Sundays. I just want to make sure that they can give me a root canal. And I think you could apply the same thing to to filmmakers uh, and, and, and what that looks like in that space. 
Well, I think if the apostles are any indication, uh, I think we'd have to agree with you. I think the point that you <laughs> made, though, Christian, is is like it's kind of a big deal. I'll tell you why. The point about people generally being receptive to this kind of thing who are not aligned. Mm-hmm. I found the same thing. In fact, I've been surprised in some cases. Like, look, I'm I'm ordained. You can Google me, and the very first stuff that comes up is not my career at Disney or Univision, but probably something that I, a talk I gave you know, uh, in, in a diaconal ministerial role. So I'm Mm -hmm. very visible now in that sense. And I work as you do with a lot of people who are not Catholic, who are not, frankly, are not aligned at all. Like maybe they're even, you know, antagonistic and on a personal level, but I found them generally speaking, one-on-one to be receptive to conversations or projects or things like this in the same way. The reason I think it's a big deal is that if there's, if there is a temptation on the values aligned side, it's along the lines of what you just mentioned, to be insular, to only want to work right. with, hey, let, let's see your credentials, that kind of thing. And the reality of it is, is that A, number one, that's not the way Jesus would do it. And he's proven that. Just read the scriptures. And number two is that it it, it tends to um, forego a lot of potential you know, evangelization potential, because I believe that everyone is longing for a connection with their creator and they go about it a different way, but the soul knows its maker. And so when you present somebody who maybe isn't aligned with this thing, that's a way to potentially evangelize. And you can also be formed and helped in, in, in whatever way God chooses through that association in ways that might be a surprise to you. So I think Amen. it's a big deal because in some sectors in the in the kind of values aligned world in the Catholic world particularly, I, you know, there's a there's a temptation over time to become insular. You know, the, maybe the greatest exp- the ex- experience of that or or manifestation of that is kind of like the Benedict Option food group, right? Where it's like I just want to sure. go in the woods and and whatever, and. And I, I just don't think that A, that works, and B, it's not for this time and place. Maybe if we were in the 13th century or something, I don't know. But like for right now, it just doesn't seem fruitful. I think we're, we are picking up the pieces from folks doing that for generations. I think Hollywood's a great example. Um, a, a friend of mine called it suicidal absenteeism, wow. where suddenly you don't like any of the stuff that's being shown on television or in films or streaming services. Who's making all the content? Where, where were you 30 years ago when you could have went into that business? And for a long time, I even experienced this, you know, even coming out of college for a long time, it was, oh, gosh, you're going to go to Hollywood. That's the yep. belly of the beast. Oh, how could you possibly mm. do that? And uh, first of all, the folks that I worked with there uh, and I worked for, you know, what might be considered a very left leaning um, film company. Uh, and I never had to compromise my values. In fact, there was a film that we were doing that I was assigned to that I said, I can't in good conscience work on this film. And I understand that that might affect my job stability. But to that point, I had proven myself not only as uh, invaluable in the work that I was doing uh, for the company, but also had created a bond with my coworkers such that they said, Christian, I really respect that decision. And of course, like we would never force you to work on something you couldn't do in good conscience. And I remember before I went to work there and I was a participant for about five years, my mother, who was a Catholic radio show host, she said to me, don't forget, Christian, you're likely to be the only Bible these people will ever read. And I took that to heart, not only in the work that I did and, and the fact that I was in some cases and in some cases at the very highest levels of the company, explicitly the only Catholic they knew. I was the only Catholic that they knew. And I took that as a responsibility 
And you can find ways to to sort of normalize what we think is very normal behavior, just even in conversation in the office. I remember people would ask me, so what'd you do this weekend? And, oh, I did this, I did that. We went to this show and, you know, then I went to mass and they'd go, wait a second. What is that? A mass or a church? Right. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, 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 of course. And, and they say, how often do you go? And I say, every Sunday. And, and I, I go during the week too. And they said, wait, you can go to church during the week? And it would just start a conversation. And it wasn't me proselytizing in any way. But it was just me having a conversation and I found a, a real curiosity and a real desire in these folks. And not only that, it's like these were the same individuals who were going on like 12 day juice cleanses and going on ayahuasca retreats in Costa Rica and going out to Joshua Tree to try to find themselves. These were people who were searching and are willing to make the sacrifices to try to come to some sort of realization. So when they see someone who, for the most part, I may do my best, try to be joyful and I have a beautiful family and, and I try to rejoice in all things. They go like, well, what are you doing? Why do you have that? And, you know, by the time I finished there, I had five or six people who were coming to daily mass with me on a, on a fairly regular Amazing. basis. So, uh, and, and it was just through, just through discussions. And some of those folks weren't even Catholic, some weren't even Christian. They're just like, Hey, this, this seems like a really interesting thing. I think that's a really powerful insight too, about the normalization of faith-based things in secular contexts, because we do have an apprehension to sharing things, A, because it sticks out and B, because somebody may take it as proselytizing. And so many cases, people, you know, who are Catholic, who are in those secular environments, don't bring them up. Yep. They don't bring them up. I, I had uh, Jeff Schiffelbein sure. on the show. I don't know if you know, do you know Jeff? He's out in Texas uh, somewhere. Yeah, that name sounds so really he, familiar. So he's a he, really cool guy. Um, and he um, he speaks all over the place and he's a business guy, or at least was, and kind of doing his own thing now. But anyway, he he talked to me, he had a similar thing where he shared on the show that somebody from this job called him and was like, um, hey, you're going to be here for the three o'clock meeting or whatever it was. I don't even remember. But he was like, yeah, mm -hmm. I just got to go to confession. Then I'll be there. But I got, you know, then I'll, don't worry about it. Oh, and by the way, the deck is, you know, here. You can find it in the Dropbox. And it was like this just insertion of what is A, true. Obviously, he was going to go to confession. Yeah. But like it dropped like a little bomb in the conversation. It was like, what is that? It was like the moment of, you know, when the dog hears the whistle, kind of like stops the conversation yeah. and the head gets cocked. But it provided an avenue for, you know, future conversations. And it was the way he said it, right? It was the way he said it. Like, it's just like a grocery list item. You know, I'm going to go do these three things. And I don't think we do that enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that's valuable because a lot of people, I could tell you, listen to this show, are in those secular settings, right? They're living their mm -hmm. faith, maybe at varying levels of visibility. And some of the things they struggle with is exactly that, which is like how, to the extent I, I do this, how do I do this? And sometimes it's just... Be natural, right? Just yeah, bring absolutely. it up. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I took that upon myself. And, and again, maybe certain people are better at it than others. But, you know, I even started internally. It was, it was partially a joke, but I called it the Judeo-Christian Alliance. And it was my Jewish brothers and sisters who I worked with in the company and Christian, me. Uh, but we would even, we would meet up and I'd ask questions about Judaism and, and they'd ask questions about Catholicism. And it was just general inquiry. Now, did I think that they were going to have some sort of fall off their horse conversion moment? Absolutely not. But did they have a different perspective of Christians and more specifically Catholics after having talked to me? Absolutely. Mm. I took that really, really seriously. And, uh, you know, even things that were a little bit more controversial that would come up, I would just present them and like, here's the why behind that. I'm not expecting you to agree with it. I'm not expecting you to, to have an aha moment, but here's the why. And you know me, like, 
you know, I love this person and that person. I'm just telling you the perspective of the church and, and what I believe in and what the church believes in and why. And just being able to present that, sometimes it, it, it didn't lower the temperature like I thought it might. But I know for sure there was, we could still work together. There was no problem where it's like, I can't be in the same room as that person because of X, Y, and Z. No, sure. not, not by any means. In fact, I think it might have created more of a bond. Well, and I bet you that you're the kind of guy that people will still remember, but in those little ways. Because a lot of the times witnessing is just showing people that they're interacting with somebody of faith and they have been and everything's okay. Right. We've sure. gotten to that point where it's like, uh, you, you know, we've we've gotten so so polarized and so balkanized that m a lot of people, they just don't interact with other folks or at least they think they're not interacting. So, you know, when you come along and you mention mass or whatever it may be or have a, or ask questions about the Jewish faith, it also normalizes it on their end in the sense that, like, here's a guy who I respect, look up to, value his work. And like, he's doing this, so maybe this isn't so strange. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that, that's, that's, you can have that effect. And, and I don't care if it's in the, you know, the copy room making copies or it's over a conversation or it's somebody asking you how your weekend was. There's, mm. Those are those small little moments where you can, sounds simply to say it, but you can normalize your behavior. Because unfortunately, in certain communities and in certain sectors of society, it's very abnormal to be married with multiple kids and go to some sort of church service. That's very abnormal. Must have been harder when you were West Coast. I mean, now you now you live in the cool the cool city in the country, Austin, of course. Um, That's true. That's this, true. This is a great blend of, uh, you probably get less uh, wide-eyed stares about the size of your family, but you still get the creative and artistic and all of those inputs and tech and investment and all that stuff. It's kind of like a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a perfect city. And I'm not, I know it's not perfect, but I'm saying it's, it's an interesting blend uh, but perhaps you you felt more of that kind of uh, response when you were when you were out here. Um, ha have you seen? Because uh, I wanted to ask you this because I just saw it. Have you seen the Padre Pio movie? No, um, I was excited as everybody else was when it was you know rumored to be coming out, and there was that that quick video with um, Shia LaBeouf with with the monks, and I think he was in Santa Barbara, or I can't remember where it was. Mm -hmm. And then when the trailer came out, I was like, oof. I don't know about this, but we'll see. Um, and then I've just heard secondhand from a couple of folks saying that there's some pretty rough stuff in it. Mm. And maybe it's not very good. Uh, I want to see it for myself uh, because I'm, I love Shia LaBeouf. I think he's terrific. Uh, Padre Pio, I, I mean, it doesn't get any better than Padre Pio in, in my world. He's as close, closest thing we have to like Iron Man in, yeah. the, in the modern Catholic faith. And uh, I hope it didn't take that direction, but uh, unfortunately, I don't know. Have, have you seen it or, or, or heard the same? Yeah, no, I saw it. Yeah. Um, and, it, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, look, I would recommend as controversial as this may be to some people, because um, I have very, you know, people that I really love and respect who, who have just had a very strong aversion, having seen the movie, just a very strong reaction to it. Um, and so I, I don't want to minimize their concerns or any concerns that are out uh -huh. there. Having said that, it is a very interesting approach. And uh, th there's a few things, um, and I, I'd love your thoughts on, on this, and sure. know, especially from your perspective as a, as a maker. The, the, the thing that's really interesting about it, first of all, the, the movie's set in this sort of broader conflict of, you know, the socialist movement beginning to to grow in Italy and the the sort of peasant revolt and all the stuff that's going on. And there's even scenes where some of the characters in the, in the, in the film have like a picture of Karl Marx in the background. So these are like 
hardcore burgeoning, you know, socialists. They don't know maybe what they're doing, but they they definitely are doing it. So it's set in this broader mm-hmm. context where at some point you look down at the t- at the ticker and it's been a half hour and we really haven't seen that much of Padre Pio. So it, it's yeah. it, there's a little bit of a tension there between what is it exactly that I'm watching. If they would have called it like some other name and Padre Pio was a character in it, it to me it would have felt a little bit more understandable because it had much more of the kind of social commentary of what was going on there at the time than maybe the story of Padre Pio. Having said that, the parts with Pio, uh, having read a lot of his autobiography, a lot of that stuff was very faithful. There was, you know, bilocation, the stigmata, um, the reading of souls in confession, um, his mysticism, his healing— all of those things were represented, and I would say represented very well in, in to the extent that they happen, particularly the final scene. I won't spoil it, but it's like very powerful, very powerful. So all of that like is happening at the same time. You got this like weird social commentary and you've got this like fairly, um, uh, you know, accurate representation of some of the things that we've come to know about, about Padre Pio and Shia LaBeouf plays it really well. His voice never convinces you and he's speaking in English, but aside from yeah, that- Yeah, he doesn't do the accent too. Yeah, yeah there's I, no, I was told he doesn't do an accent. There's no accent. And some of the characters <laughs> have- choice. Some of the characters have a little bit of an accent. Others don't. Like it's it's a mix of actors, you know, some are, a lot of them are Italian. Um, so it's it's a little weird in that sense. Um, but but here's the thing that I would say, and, and, and I, this is specifically what I want your take on is- when you start watching that movie, and the, it was directed by Abel Ferrara, and for those who don't know, this is, you know, the, I mean, the first Abel Ferrara movie I saw was Bad Lieutenant, and I do not recommend Bad that Lieutenant. movie to anybody. Okay? <laughs> no, that's, it was a, that's not a living the call watch list. No, it's not. It doesn't <laughs> no. make the watch list. It was, it, you know, it was a different time. But here's what's clear to me. From the opening scene, you are watching someone's artistic vision, and it is clear. Now, you might like cubism or not. You might like realism or not. You might like pointillism or not, but you know it's an art, right? It's an art form. Uh And from literally the opening scene, the use of music, I mean, like everything, you are watching someone with extraordinary skill tell a story, right? And so the part that's fascinating to me is like the artistry of it, right? And then looking for examples of that level of artistry in kind of our world, right? Of like this kind of values align world. And generally speaking, I don't know that I can say that. Like here's 10 people that can do this kind of thing, right? So it's really a, a mixed bag. It takes some time to discern exactly how you feel about it. The, the last thing I'll say, because uh-huh. I, I definitely want your thoughts. I'm monopolizing the microphone here. But the last thing I'll say is... Um, that there, the, to the extent that you've heard about, you know, scenes, there is an absolutely blasphemous scene in it. But the context, if there's any kind of out to give the director, is that this is a demonic character or demonic figure performing the blasphemy. It's literally like a demon doing this, right? So it's in that kind of the exorcist category with the, you know, with the crucifix and all that stuff, right? So it's in that world, of, of blasphemy where it's like, yeah, that's what demons do. They blaspheme. So, so that's, that's how I would only qualify, but it's absolutely blasphemous. And it's something when I was watching it, I skipped through it. It's, it's like, it's like a minute. Okay. But you can tell what's happening. And then there was some other outcry about Shia LaBeouf because you see him naked. I'm like, or his backside, you see his butt, but he's like, you know, bent over crying because he just got up out of bed and was attacked by demons. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, relax. 
Like that, that's a different, in my mind, that's a different thing. Yeah, sure. So anyway, that's my, you know, Siskel and Ebert for you on, on, on it. But I'm really curious about the artistry thing of it because it's clear to me that I was watching some level of artistry. Yeah. And I mean, again, context matters, right? This is not a, 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 a kids and family movie. So not at all. That going in. Yeah. And you have to be able to, I hope so. People would appreciate that art. And, but in order to have great art, you have to have great art audiences. And like, you are a perfect example of that where you could say, Hey, listen, I don't like every choice that was made here, but I can see the beauty. I can see the seeds of truth that this director or this writer or, or these actors are, are participating in. What I find most interesting about that um, explanation and what I find most attractive about your description of the film is sort of a dream that I've had in telling in, in particular saint stories. Right. Mm. Um, so I know there's some folks working on some terrific stories around St. Maximilian and Colby, right? Yep. I would love to see a mainstream Hollywood Holocaust film that Maximilian Colby is a character in. Preach it. It's not the, Maxim- it's not the Maximilian Colby film because, let's be frank, Maximilian Colby doesn't have name recognition beyond a lot of Catholic audiences. I know this in particular. My oldest or, son. Or in Poland. Yeah, or in Poland. Yeah. Uh, my oldest son, his middle name is Maximilian for that reason. But, uh, but like that is a really interesting, mm. uh, angle. Mm. And I think it's uh, a corollary would be something like a person saying, Hey, we've got the next big pro-life movie coming out. God bless them. I'm not judging them in any way. I'm not judging their hearts, but you know, who's not going to go see the pro-life movie. I think we can, we can fill in the blank. Now there's other films and, and oftentimes it's been incidental, but there's a film, there's a, a scene in the film Juno, mm-hmm. uh, that is one of the most pro-life scenes you can possibly see. I mean, it's visceral. It's absolutely visceral. And then you just think about the, the, the whole narrative arc of that film. You're like, wow, that, that wasn't really pro-life film. It was not built that way. It wasn't even intentional. So it's maybe not the best example, but I think there's ways where we have to be innocent as doves, true to serpents and say, is this going to serve the story? And is this going to serve audiences? And maybe making that, that St. Max film in and of itself is going to be fantastic and uh it is what it is but boy imagine if it became what if maximilian colby had been in schindler's list yeah i'm not i'm not saying you have to you have to force it but that i think if you can be strategic if you can be um precise in how you integrate stuff like that you actually have an opportunity not only to really hit the movable middle but to really like i said before leave a dent in culture i could not agree with you more i i wonder is that a function of of these makers uh, not being good marketers. And and by the way, I exclude specifically the the folks behind the Colby example you just said, who we both know. Yeah. I'm speaking in general terms. Sure. Is it is it that these guys are not gals, guys and gals, not good marketers in the sense that like just the idea of let's make a saint movie, you're and calling it Saint X, you're making it very narrow, very small, mm-hmm. automatically. Like and it, so it is that some function of this that it's like we're just maybe not good at marketing? Yes. Uh, full stop. Yes. Uh, now, someone might say, well, then you're compromising, right? A, a saint story should be able to stand on its own and you should be able to use it for evangelization purposes and, and catechetical purposes. I don't disagree, but it has to be basically what is your intent? You know, if, if I was working at, at Snickers and I said, listen, I just want to make the bar this way, but Christian, only 100 people are going to buy it if you make the bar this way. And I say, I'm fine with that. I want to make the best bar for 100 people. Okay, that's fine. Then I, I'm going to be successful. But if you say, hey, I actually want to affect culture. I want to create a film 
that have, has as much impact at the box office as it has on the hearts of those who see it. Then I think you actually have to have that hard conversation to say, okay, are we actually considering this film in the right light? Um, because there's a business model in, in making those films. There's a business model in making, you know, very faith forward Christian films. If they're made well, like I would say the Irwin brothers are doing a terrific job doing, but, uh, if, if the intent is to say, Hey, we actually want to do something that's going to have a wider cultural impact and we actually want to have longevity. We want to keep getting our films funded and made. There's a reason why the Irwin brothers sound like a broken record. But they have like a record where I think their first six films that they've done with Lionsgate have all been greenlit by Lionsgate. No, no other even secular producer has done that. And why? Because people pay to go see these movies. Yeah. And if people pay to go see these movies, we're going to pay you to make more of them. And so I don't think it's a it's an overt any kind of moral compromise. I think it's it's about strategy and it's about you know, Jesus telling a parable. The parable didn't knock you over the head like a PowerPoint presentation. It made you think. Yeah, And it made you think not just in the moment, but it made you think as you walked back to your village and discussed it with your friends, we're still talking about it to this day. Um, so yeah, I do think we're not great at marketing. We need to get better now. We need to tap into the prowess of, of folks who might not be values aligned with us and, and to take their feedback seriously. And I think if, and when we do that, I know we're, we're, we're doing that at, uh, um, at dynamite and, and Sycamore, which is our, our family and our, our family and kids division. Um, we're absolutely doing that. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason why uh, the Irwin brothers and all the success that you've identified is is because that formula has worked. And Lionsgate doesn't decide to give you a, an output deal and and UTA doesn't sign Jonathan Rumi because they're like, oh, this is really good for the world. Right. I mean, that's not their mm-hmm. principal motivation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's seeing the success. I think the idea of the connection, I know you've ta- you've actually taught college courses on the the connection between culture and media. We, we can quickly forget that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can bemoan the state of media and then forget that the reason we're bemoaning it is because of its influence. So like that connection between what we make and what comes out the other end culturally is key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There's a great quote. Um, I was just giving a talk back in New York uh, this week about this. And there's a great quote from a 1930s film critic. And it says something to the extent of uh, the new church is uh, theaters. It's the place Mm. where people go to sit in the dark and look at people in the light, tell them what it means to be human. Wow. Those are the new, the new church of the masses is, is the theater. And I think we have Mm. to take that really, really seriously. But Mm. in order to get butts in seats, as we say, what you're putting up there on the screen is important. And, you know, you have to use some nuance and artistry and imagine if that artistry that you, that you saw in uh, the Padre Pio film, you know, imagine that type of artistry strategically, um, released in ways and, and consistently released in ways that are really going to move the hearts and minds of audiences and provide consistent, trustworthy, beautiful, entertaining content on a regular mm. basis. I mean, the opportunity there is absolutely massive, absolutely massive. Um, and it's something that we, we really have to do. And we know that politics is downstream from culture. You're not going to win a, a quote unquote culture war with politics, mm-hmm. but stories are what are ultimately upstream from culture. So Amen. if we're not winning the story wars and we're not doing our part or we're not honoring our call in order to do that at the, the highest possible level, I used to always say, like, if, if you feel that Jesus is calling you to be a storyteller, think of it in the same way if Jesus was calling you to be a dentist. Mm. Would you just move out to Hollywood and set up a sign outside of 7-Eleven and offer to start pulling teeth because Jesus called you to be a dentist? No. 
you try to get what my, my advice would be is honor your calling, go to the best possible dental school you can get into mentor with the best dentist you can possibly get a hold of work your tail off to try to finish as high as you possibly can in your class and do everything you can to be the best dentist you can possibly be. Not the best Christian dentist that you can possibly be the best dentist who is Christian because that's mm. ultimately what's going to define your success. And if we can do that consistently, and I think it's actually happening now, Charlie, I think we actually have for the first time, the talent, the, the resources, and the motivation to actually start moving this forward. And I think to your earlier point, we have an exhausted or redlined audience who's ready for it. I think, I think the future is very, very bright. The pump is primed, which is why I'm so excited to get you, uh, get you going on this thing and, uh, and, 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 and track uh, your progress. By the way, I think you actually titled the episode for us, winning the story wars. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And we don't think of story um, enough at all. And we've got the best stories ever. Uh We've got the best stories ever. So matching the demand side, the marketing, and then the artistry together with that best story ever, that's the part that really starts getting exciting and big. That's awesome. You know, we didn't, uh, show fans of the show will be very disappointed, Christian, that we did not, um, prepare a wait what segment for today so that's just on me because i've just been too slammed but i'm gonna have to bring you back to do the wait what segment in its stead uh just because i know i gotta get you on your way um why don't you no share with folks how they can keep tabs on what you're doing at sycamore dynamite etc maybe more about your work what you're excited about just like give us that that uh that 411 yeah, so Dynamite Studios, we actually are in the process of getting our, our updated website up right now, but Dynamite is really focused more on the agency work. So we try to help brands, foundations, really try to win those story wars in whatever they're trying to do, whether it's attract more customers, whether it's put forth policy victories, you name it, everything in between. And we take the story science that, that we've learned and having worked in Hollywood and working for big brands and really try to apply that to, to great work. And then on Sycamore, like I said before, Tim Record, uh, my partner on that side, we're going to be going out to market probably the end of the summer, uh, doing some initial fundraising as, as we really bring uh, that idea to fruition. And we want to get to a point where we're producing at least two films a year. Um, and I think we can get there in a, on a very short timeline. Um, so if folks are, are interested in that, yeah, I would love to have them reach out um, and, uh, and see how we can potentially work together. Awesome. Well, people can find you on LinkedIn. They can find you on socials, um, investor types out there, people that are interested in content funds, all of that kind of thing. Um, Christian would be a great conversation for you to have. Uh, what a great privilege to have you on, brother. Uh, anytime, anytime you're yeah, uh, in pleasure. LA, you know, you're welcome to come by and we can keep riffing about story and anything else that you ever want to talk about. And look, my uh, continued prayers and by extension, those of this audience for the prosperity of everything that you're trying to build, we need it. Um, and I know you're doing it from the standpoint of a faithful Christian and a good father and a great business guy and a good marketer and a good content guy. So you've got the package. Now just bring it out there to the world to, you know, for the world to see. Amen. Thank you very much, Charlie. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on. If you're listening to our voices, that means it is time to follow the show, to share this episode. You know that person who's living their faith, maybe a little bit quietly, or that person in the content world who maybe hasn't heard this, this type of thinking about the importance of strategy, of marketing, of how to combine that with artistry for the good of the world. Share this with them because they need to hear it. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.